Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 38th episode of the Nauticast entitled Out of the Black and Into the Blue, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Tyrion 5, in which Tyrion escapes a perilous situation with his wit, cunning, and a well-timed roll of the dice. Classic Tyrion shit, in other words. This episode is brought to you by our small council, Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lords Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark Annan Hayden J., and Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Thank you, gentlemen and ladies, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. Our spoiler wing, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from one of our uh, small counselors, Archmaester June, healer of the Lesser Poxes, who asks, I have a question. I was mulling over Danny's prophecy regarding betrayals. The third one will be, quote, for love. This is uh, from the House of the Undying. Yep. There's a character who very pointedly does questionable things for love, Jamie Lannister. I was trying to turn this about in my mind to bring these two references together. I don't think he will betray anyone on Cersei's behalf. His arc seems to be very much winding in a different direction. What might be neat, though, is if he is responsible for Danny's demise, as he was for her father's, for hmm. love of, well, the realm, the world, humanity, or something. Thoughts? What do you think, Jeff? Do you think uh, Jamie could be connected to that particular prophecy of Daenerys's? Um, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm well, kidding. thank you for your question. On <laughs> yeah, great, great five. question, Jude. No, uh, no, I, I, I think... Here's the thing about the prophecies, right? So I, we we spend so much time trying to like finger a specific person of ah, this is the betrayal for gold. This is the betrayal for love. This is the betrayal for family, right? Is that the third one or blood. gold, love, and blood? Yeah, yeah, blood. Yeah, blood or family. And I think that George is going to leave that utterly ambiguous at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. I think that Daenerys Targaryen has already indicated different characters to fit the different roles. She's thought of. Folks like Brown Ben Plum, Jorah Mormont, Miri Mazdor as as fitting these different roles. But I'm not necessarily sure that there's they actually correspond one and one to a specific person or a house or some sort of faction or something like that. Now, the, it could be in Martin's mind that it does correspond to someone, but he's never going to reveal that specifically. I think that... One of the more interesting theories that I've heard is that the three betrayals potentially represent people that Danny will betray. Um, I think that's an interesting uh, potentiality, but I don't necessarily agree with it necessarily. Uh, I, I think for me, for this is just my personal opinion. My personal opinion, the for love betrayal is Barristan Selmy, which you can read about more, read about more. You can listen to more in our The Fate of the White Knight episode from the uh, that's actually released now to the general public, but it was originally a Patreon only episode. My feeling is that is Barristan's love for Rhaegar Targaryen will be the thing that will influence him to turn cloak on Daenerys Targaryen. And that will be devastating, I think. Barristan turning cloak on Danny will be, be will be devastating. I know Emma disagrees, and, and that's fine to be wrong. This is America, and we have the freedom <laughs> to be wrong here. But I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that Jamie is the for love part of the House of the Undying Prophecy? Do you finger someone else for it? Yeah, I think that's probably more of a thematic connection than anything else. Just a common question and struggle coming up in both Jamie and Danny's stories, and it is a literal connection. Uh, I struggle with the treasons for sure. I don't think there's particularly satisfying answers to any of them as it stands. Maybe we'll get yeah. some clarification going forward. Maybe the point is, as you said, kind of Danny's paranoia and how it 
It refuses to help her. There's that great line from, great slash terrible line from Marwin the Mage about how prophecy will bite your prick off every time. <laughs> that might be what we're looking at with Danny and the Undying in this regard. I, I think <laughs> if, if Danny comes to any conclusion with this in her storyline, it's going to be kind of dissatisfaction with the Undying and with that prophetic stream of consciousness as a whole, more yeah. than it's going to be any kind of aha, it all snaps together moment. Whereas I do think we're going to get that for, say, the Valonqar moment. I think we're going to get a very specific yes. direct acknowledgement on Cersei's part that it's Jamie. I yes. think that catharsis of realizing she was wrong is kind of the whole point of that prophecy in her storyline. But this, I think I agree with you, might remain more obscured. Yeah, you know, they talk, Marwin talks about prophecy as being as butting off your cock every single time. Jon Snow, and I believe he's quoting Val, and I could be totally wrong on that, but he's quoting a wildling. It's either Val or Dalla, one of the two, uh, which says that prophecy is a sword without a hilt, meaning that, it yes, it has the ability to cut your enemies and to determine and kind of kind of determine the future, but also has the ability to cut you too. And I think that's one of the things that we see over and over in Daenerys Targaryen's story in A Song of Ice and Fire is that she is effectively haunted by the prophecies that she's given at the House of the Undying. But she's haunted by the prophecies from Quaith, from the House of the Undying. You can imagine her meeting up with Makoro and getting more prophecies in The Winds of Winter. Sure, no doubt. And seeing kind of some reloric tinge prophecies and being haunted by that as well and trying to determine, well, am I, you know, the breaker of chains, the mother of dragons, kind of the same character and thematic dynamics that play out in Danny's story, especially in, in Storm of Swords, but especially in, in A Dance of Dragons. But yeah, I think ultimately, I don't think that Jamie is the for love prophecy necessarily. Although maybe at some point in Winds or A Dream of Spring, Martin will like allow like that little kind of little wiggle room in be like, oh, well, is Jamie going to be the, the prophecy is going to be the for love betrayal for Daenerys Targaryen? It, it could, you could, you could see something like that. You know, maybe we have, you know, we have a situation at the end of season seven of Game of Thrones where Jamie Lannister is riding north to Winterfell ostensibly, and he's going to be taking sides with, you know, the Starks and the Targaryens as they attempt to battle the White Walkers. Maybe Jamie Lannister turns cloak on Daenerys Targaryen for love for Cersei, but ultimately I think Jamie is going to end up, you know, murdering or killing or mercy killing Cersei Lannister. So I don't think that he's necessarily the for love prophecy, but I think it's an interesting thought. Obviously we've been talking about it for a few minutes, so it's generated a lot of thoughts there. So my, um, no answer from before is not necessarily, uh, it's a little bit too, too dismissive. I think it is kind of an interesting thought to kind of turn over in your mind. Of course, like I said, it's got resonance, even if it's not a direct one-to-one interpretation. I think it's no accident that the theme is in common with both their characters. Absolutely. So thank you much, Archmaster June for the question. Yeah, thank you so much for the question. And as some of you guys have been following us on social media now know, we have exceeded 500 patrons on Patreon, and we're just extremely thankful and blessed by your continued support for us. And we thank you all very, very much for for supporting us for these, you know, now eight months of doing this podcast. And, you know, in the next month, you'll be seeing us up in Jersey City talking Talking to George R. R. Martin, as it were, asking him potentially mm-hmm. a question. And you might have a little hint of the question that we're going to ask him if you could, if you listen to our Stump the Chumps part two. So, again, just thank you so much for all the support you've been giving us. And we look forward to being with you all for many, many years to come. Amen, Jeff. Yes. Oh, wait. No, I thought you were going to say amen, brother. I, was I all subverted like, your expectations. I'm a genius. Give me a Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're the last Jedi. Excellent. <laughs> okay. 
So anywho, anyhow, thanks Archmaster June for the question. And now we're on to a fantastic Tyrion chapter. And this is the summary for a Game of Thrones Tyrion five beans, awful, terrible beans, things really that no human should eat because beans are the fucking worst are on a plate in the hands of Mord or a Zora high figure, or maybe a Zora Mord, right? Right. No, I am not right. I wasn't going to say it. I'm glad he did. (laughs) Exactly. Mord holds a plate of beans in front of a starving Tyrion, but the dwarf isn't about to give up on his Lannister pride. He'd prefer a leg of lamb, some peas and onions, bread and wine, or beer if you have it. Thank you very much. But Mord only stupidly repeats that it's beans. And what does Mord look like? Well, glad you asked. He's 280 pounds with brown rotting teeth, small dark eyes, and the left side of his face had a scar where an axe had taken off half his ear and part of his cheek. Hmm, one of those are like Klansmen, actually. Didn't have that in the document, but I'm curious about that now. Tyrion reaches for the plate, but Mord snatches it away. Is here, he says, holding the plate out of Tyrion's grasp. Tyrion asks Mord if they have to play this damn game every single mealtime and tries to grab the plate again. Mord yanks it away towards the opening of the sky cell. Is here, dwarf man. Tyrion ain't about to get close to that edge. He tells Mord he's really not hungry after all. So Mord lets the plate fall from his hands and into the blue. The beans spill out into the air with some coming back into the cell. This drives Tyrion bananas. But because this is a family podcast, I'm going to paraphrase what he says next. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mord, I am not fond of the status quo. Furthermore, this atmosphere of workplace hostility has made me feel unwelcome. Thank God Tyrion Lannister has brought civility and decorum back to our fractious national politics. Absolutely. Next he's going to be advocating for centrism. The hero we need. <laughs> exactly. So... When Mord then strikes Tyrion for saying that, Tyrion replies more sharply, again, paraphrasing, because, again, family podcast, I am disappointed by your lack of respect and believe that your attitude will lead to an early demise if you don't seek help for yourself. That's actually not what he says. You can read the chapter itself. Actually, Emmett's going to tell you what it says later on. Well, this causes Mord to storm away and slam the door to Tyrion's cell. Only then does Tyrion realize that maybe he has too big of a mouth. He crawls to the corner of the room as far away from the openings he can get and huddles under a thin blanket. He stares out into the empty blue sky and wishes he had a heavier cloak or blanket. Furthermore, Tyrion would trade the worst pit of Casterly Rock for this fucking imprisonment. When he had first been tossed in the cell, Mord had stated that Tyrion would fly sooner or later. And here we get some kind of interesting world building that George kind of indulges in. The Aarons had designed the only jail in Westeros where prisoners could escape. The wall to the outside was open, so prisoners could, you know, leave, albeit they'd have to kind of jump down several hundred feet of sheer rock face. Tyrion had gathered enough courage the first day to poke his head down, and he knew that death would await anyone who jumped. He was a bee in a stone honeycomb, and someone had torn off his wings. The cell itself was not particularly comfortable. Cold and prone to screaming winds, it was bad, but it was worse that the flooring of the cell had been designed to ever so slightly slope. Yes. Yeah. And there was the graffiti scrawled on the side of the wall. God save me, the blue is calling. Tyrion thinks the writing looks like it was made with blood and wonders what happened to the dude before deciding, you know, it's better not to know about those sorts of things. If only... Tyrion had shut his mouth. Tyrion remembers back to Sweet Robin looking down from his carved werewood throne in front of the assembled Vale nobility. Hmm, about that throne, huh? More on that later. The boy had asked his mother Lysa if Tyrion was a bad man, and Lysa had said, yes, of course he's a bad man. He murdered John Aaron after all. Wait, 
what? Yeah, that's Lysa's story anyhow. Tyrion responds with, oh, did I kill him too? Which goes over about as well as a vegan protest at an outdoor barbecue in Texas. Tyrion realizes he needs to shut the fuck up, be submissive and silent, but he's in an understandably bad mood. Now, certainly part of that bad mood was from, you know, being taken captive by Catelyn Stark, being attacked on the high road by the clansmen, and all the misfortunes that he had suffered since Winterfell. But specifically here, Tyrion cites his embarrassment and shame at having Bronn carry him up the last leg of the trip up the Eyrie. This humiliation had caused him to continue lashing out at Lysa and Sweet Robin. It would seem I've been a busy little fellow. I wonder where I found the time to do all this slaying and murdering. Tyrion really should know better. Having spent some time around the errands in King's Landing and the court, but again, he's super fucking pissed and humiliated. Lysa had told Tyrion to guard his tongue and remember where he is. Everyone in the courtroom would die for her and her son. To which Tyrion had replied that if anything happened to him, his brother Jamie would ensure that everyone in the courtroom would die. Again, Tyrion knows it's stupid to say, but he keeps saying ugly things regardless. When Lysa threatens Tyrion with the moon door, if he keeps threatening her and her son, Tyrion responds, I made no threats. That was a promise. Sweet Robin had jumped up at that, screaming that Tyrion can't hurt them here in the Vale, and begins having a mini-seizure, of course. Lysa assures the boy that the Eyrie is impregnable and that Tyrion was trying to frighten them with empty threats, which Tyrion knows is probably accurate. Attacking the Eyrie would be a goddamn suicide mission for any knight or soldier attempting it. They'd have to fight uphill the entire way, while defenders would be able to hurl stones and arrows down from above. The Eyrie can't be easily taken from the ground. More on that later. But for the moment, Tyrion tries to say that the Eyrie is not impregnable. It's merely inconvenient. Sweet Robin accuses Tyrion of being a liar, and he would love to see Tyrion fly. Two Vale guardsmen lift Tyrion off the ground, and Tyrion thinks he's about to die until Catelyn, who is good, by the way, intervenes. She states that Tyrion is her prisoner and that he is not to be harmed. Lysa is, you know, pissed, but knows that Catelyn is right. But she ain't going to say those words. So she walks away, but not before ordering Ser Vardis Egan to take Tyrion to his sky cell. I will remember this Tyrion threatens, promises, both. Tyrion attempts to console himself with the knowledge that eventually Lysa and Catelyn will call on him. Besides, they wouldn't really kill a Lancer of Casterly Rock, would they? And then Tyrion had been in this cell for a long time. Hungry, weak, and exhausted, Tyrion figures he's not going to last that much longer. Eventually, the blue will call to him one way or the other. But then, more wonderings. Had word gotten out to his father or to Jaime? What was Cersei thinking about all this? And where the fuck was everyone? If Cersei was smart, she'd order Robert to try Tyrion himself, and Tyrion would be alright with this. There was no proof he'd done any wrongdoing, but he knows Cersei isn't smart enough. She'd see the insult, not the opportunity. And Jaime was worse. He was impetuous and would probably do something rash, like attack Ned Stark in the streets of King's Landing or something like that. You know, something random like that. Oh, and by the way, which one of them had sent the footpad to kill Bran Stark? If John Aaron was actually murdered, that was quite subtle, but the attempt on Bran's life was rather clumsy. And wasn't hmm. that peculiar, come to think of it? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Perhaps it wasn't just the Lannisters and the Starks playing the game. And now someone was potentially using him as a cat's ball. He hated being used. Tyrion realizes that he needs to get out of the cell and out of the Eyrie quick, fast, in a hurry. But he can't really escape. He'd have to use his mouth for good, finally. He starts shouting for Mord, and after about ten minutes of shouting and pounding on the door, Mord finally appears with a leather strap in hand. Making noise, Mord says. Tyrion promises him gold, which results in Mord striking him with the strap. Mord tells him to be quiet. Tyrion repeats gold and tells Mord that he's a Lannister of Casterly Rock. There's so much gold in Casterly Rock. Mord hits him again, this time in the ribs. It sends Tyrion to his knees whimpering. 
Tyrion forces himself to look up as he says, as rich as the Lannisters. That's what they say, Mord. And then, of course, Mord whacks Tyrion straight across the face. Tyrion falls and tries to push himself up, but his fingers touch nothing. He's right where the cell ends at the blue. More to say? Mord asks. Tyrion somehow assures himself that Mord won't push him over because, you know, Catelyn Stark won't allow it because she's good, by the way. He compliments Mord on hitting him so hard, telling him that he can make good use of Mord. The jailer tries to hit him again, but it's really not that hard this time. Tyrion promises gold, land, horses, women, golden women. No gold, Mord says, but Tyrion takes notice that the man is listening now. He tells Mord that they took his purse of gold, but he's sure that they haven't stolen it. The Honorable Catelyn Stark wouldn't allow outright theft. So help me, Mordecai, you're my only, you're Tyrion's only hope. All you have to do is deliver a message. A message? Tell Lysa Aaron that I wish to confess my crimes. Mord thinks to hit Tyrion again, but he hesitates. Then tells Tyrion that he thinks that Tyrion means to cheat him. Nah, Tyrion isn't going to cheat Mord. He'll put his promise of much gold in writing. Mord hesitates, but then finally decides to go get the paper and ink. Tyrion writes his promise and then sends Mord, Mord off to deliver the message. Later that night, Tyrion is asleep when Sir Varys Egan wakes him to see Lysa. Tyrion rubs sleep from his eyes, tells Varys that he may not want to see Lysa. Tyrion remembers Varys from when he was captain of the guard at King's Landing, a humorless square man, and he really doesn't give a shit about Tyrion once. If he refuses, he'll just simply carry Tyrion to Lysa. So Tyrion gets to his feet and asks Mord for his cloak. Mord does that suspicion thing, but Tyrion re-instructs Mord that it's goddamn cold and please get that Shadowskin cloak for me. Thank you very much. Mord finally relents, gets the cloak and drapes it around Tyrion's shoulders, and then we're off to see Lysa in the, in the High Hall. The High Hall is lit by 50 torches, and Lysa is in the hall wearing black silk with moon and falcon sewn over her breast, and her hair braided across her shoulder. Tyrion bows and looks around the hall. Catelyn Stark, Brendan Tully, Nestor Royce, Sir Albert Royce, Lynn Corbray, Lord Hunter, Lady Wainwood, and others are there. He notices Roger Cassell and Willis Wood are there too. Oh, and did I mention that Bronn is there too? Yeah, he's there. Kind of important. Catelyn tells Tyrion that they were told that the dwarf wishes to confess his crimes. Tyrion agrees, and Lysa makes some idiotic comment about the sky cells breaking Tyrion. But Catelyn doesn't think that Tyrion looks broken. Lysa tells Tyrion just to get on with his fucking confession. And now to roll the dice, Tyrion thinks. And then at long last, after four and a half chapters, we finally meet the Tyrion Lannister we'll come to know and love for the rest of the books. And I'm going to quote this in full because it's great. Where to begin? I am a vile little man, I confess it. My crimes and sins are beyond counting, my lords and ladies. I have lain with whores, not once, but hundreds of times. I have wished my own lord father dead and my sister, a gracious queen, as well. Behind him, someone chuckled. I have not always treated my servants with kindness. I have gambled. I have cheated, I blush to admit. I have said many cruel and malicious things about the noble lords and ladies of the court. That drew outright laughter. Once I... And then, of course, Lysa cuts him off. But man, I have to kind of admit here that this is really kind of funny. I, I laughed several times rereading this this scene because it's just great. Mm -hmm. Likewise. It's like, it's like Tyrion is like his most Tyrion. I think it's, that's terrific. But Lysa is not nearly as amused as Emmett and I are about this. She asks Tyrion what the fuck he's doing. Why confessing my crimes, my lady? Catelyn steps forward and reiterates that he's here under charges of sending someone to murder Bram and for killing John Arryn. And for killing John Arryn. Tyrion shrugs. Those crimes I cannot confess, I fear. I know nothing of any murders. Oh, you will someday, Tyrion. Oh, you will someday, Tyrion, but not now. Lysa rages about how she won't be mocked and that she hopes Tyrion has enjoyed his joke because he's headed back for a sky cell, a smaller one, not so fast. 
Is this how justice is done in the veil? Does honor stop at the bloody gate? You accuse me of crimes. I deny them, so you throw me into an open cell to freeze and starve. Where is the king's justice? Is the Erie not part of the seven kingdoms? I stand accused, you say. Very well. I demand a trial. Let me speak and let my truth or falsehood be judged openly in the sight of gods and men. Can you tell I'm really kind of enjoying this because this is mm-hmm. just peak period and, and some good information kind of on how law works in Westeros for the nobility anyways. Anyhow, anyhow, Tyrion knows he can't be denied a trial. So Lysa obliges him stating that if he's found guilty, he's dead. And since the veil doesn't have a headsman, open the moon door. People mm-hmm. get out of the way of the middle of the room as a werewood door parts. Guardsmen remove the bronze bars and suddenly there's a giant hole in the middle of the room. Lysa crows about this being the king's justice as wind whips up from the hole in the floor. Catelyn tries to caution Lysa against his idiocy, but Lysa ain't listening. You want a trial, my lord of Lancaster? Very well. A trial you shall have. My son will listen to whatever you care to say and you shall hear his judgment. Then you may leave by one door or the other. Tyrion sees that Lysa is smug and satisfied and wonders how many people Sweet Robin has sent through the moon door. He comes up with a new strategy. I thank you, my good lady, but I see no need to trouble Lord Robert. The gods know the truth of my innocence. I will have their verdict. Not the judgment of men. I demand a trial by combat. Everyone laughs at Tyrion, but Lysa is caught completely off balance. She says, yeah, I guess that's your right. A knight comes forward comes forward and begs to be Lysa's champion. Lord Hunter says he should be the champion for Lysa, given his love for John Aaron. Sir Albert Royce offers his sword as well. So does Lynn Corbury. In the end, it's a dozen men offering their swords. Lysa thanks them all, but she already has someone in mind. Servardus Egan. Servardus hadn't really been among those clamoring to fight Tyrion. It would be shameful to slaughter such a man and call it justice, he says. At least someone besides Catelyn has sense in all of this. Tyrion agrees with Varus all the same. He wants a champion just like Lysa. And who does he want as his champion? Jamie. Well, that ain't gonna fly. Tyrion will fight Vardis Egan tomorrow. Tyrion yells over Merlion, yes, that asshole is here too. And when he writes his that when he writes his song to make sure to write lyrics about how Lysa denied Tyrion his right to a champion and ordered Tyrion to fight all bruised, lame, and hobbling. According to Lysa, though, she's denied him nothing. Irritated, she tells Tyrion to find a champion to die for him. So Tyrion looks around the room, saying he'd rather have a man who'd kill for him. No one moves. Tyrion starts to wonder if it was all a huge error, but then there's a stirring in the back of the hall. I'll stand for the dwarf, Bronn calls out. Woohoo! And that is a Game of Thrones Tyrion 5, really my favorite Tyrion chapter so far. Tyrion is becoming, like I said in the summary, the Tyrion Lannister we come to know and love throughout the rest of the books, especially his War of Wits against Lysa. And then, you know, got Bronn saying he'll stand for the dwarf. That's just fantastic. So your favorite chapter too, Emmett? Yeah, absolutely. Easily my favorite Tyrion chapter so far. Uh, he hasn't exactly been one of my favorite POVs up to this point in A Game of Thrones. Martin always does a good job of getting us inside his head, but he's been stuck on the fringe of the actual plot for the, for the book so far, practically yeah. a supporting character in John and Catelyn's stories. He hasn't had the chance to demonstrate any real narrative agency to show us what he's good at. And that changes with this chapter. He's forced to the very literal edge of a very (laughs) literal drop. And he has to improvise not just to be the wittiest man in the room, as in previous Tyrion chapters, but to stay alive. Yeah. Really, this chapter has everything you could want. It has suspense. It has world building. 
It has political machinations. It has character work for Tyrion and his fatally big mouth. <laughs> and yes, it has that moment of fuck yeah triumph at the very end as it all pays off. The, the momentum and the density of Tyrion's chapters in The Clash of Kings, which I love dearly, really stem from this one. So let's dive in. Let's do it, man. So the theme of this chapter, as you got across really well in your synopsis, is how Tyrion uses sarcasm and mockery to deal with a world that judges him on first glance. But he can also draw on deeper reserves of manipulation when push comes to shove, as it literally <laughs> does. He's really the, the defiant, proud, roaring line in this chapter. Yeah. In a way similar to how Jamie was in Edward Nine, but uh, Jamie was in control of that situation. Tyrion has his back against the wall, or yeah. the non-existent wall, as the case may be. Yeah, you're absolutely correct in that Tyrion is in a place where he has no recourse but to use his wits. And we find him early in the chapter... Using sarcasm and mockery, something that we see him using with Jon Snow, with the High Command of the Night's Watch, with Catelyn Stark, in places where he has a bit more of a semblance of power. But here we see him where his sarcasm and mockery aren't going to work because he's in a place now where they are effectively damning him. They're making him look guilty. I think that's the thing that... That, that I feel like that, does, that maybe Tyrion doesn't understand necessarily and that his, his mocking words and his sarcasm are making him look awfully freaking guilty here to the assembled nobility of the Vale. He's not he's not reading the room well. And I think that's something to keep in mind here. And it's also important to note that when he changes his tactics at the end of the chapter, that he does so with an idea of the mood of the room. You have those lines and phrases about, you know, people laughing at the things he was saying. You know, you don't get that sense from early on when he's making fun of Mord, when he's telling Mord he's going to kill him, when he's making fun of Lysa and Sweet Robin and Servardus Egan, that he's reading the room necessarily. No one's laughing at his jokes. I mean, we are as readers, but no one in the story is. And I think that's an important distinction to make when we're talking about Tyrion and his wit and his humor, that yes, we enjoy it, but people in the story might not enjoy it. I think if I was an assembled nobleman in the Vale, let's just say, for instance, I might not enjoy Tyrion's sense of humor in this situation. No, what do the Blackfish say? The mood in the Vale is angry. Right. John Aaron, they think, was poisoned. Lysa has been ruling them in a way they're not particularly favorable to. They're worried about the future under Sweet Robin. So Tyrion walking in here accused of this particular crime and responding with mockeries a match in a room full of dry tinder. It's just a bad idea all around. And of course, you sympathize for Tyrion because his life is on the line for a crime he didn't commit. But that's what makes his tone such a problem, is that his life is on the line for a crime he didn't commit. While it's very relatable on a personal level that you might respond to that with two middle fingers and a fuck the system, it's it's not the best solution in terms of survival. And yeah, Tyrion's arc over the chapter is very much realizing that. It's not exactly a pure moral triumph, as we'll get into in terms of how (laughs) Tyrion pulls that off, which is what keeps the chapter and the character wonderfully complicated. But yeah, that's what makes this kind of more dramatically structured than previous Tyrion chapters, is that noticeable transformation, this kind of self-conscious change he undergoes in terms of how he uses his language and his wit to master his environment much more effectively. Yeah, you know, he Tyrion's an obvious underdog in earlier Tyrion chapters, literally and figuratively. But here, he's not just the underdog. He is the underdog and all alone without a single ally, except for Bronze. We're going to find out at the end of this chapter and on into uh, on his Tyrion 6, uh, Catelyn 7 and Tyrion 6. But yeah, I mean, he's he's at a point where in his life where he's he's close to the edge, like you say that. But I think it's also interesting, too, that he's trying to survive all of this. He's trying to survive his visit to the Vale. And he still has some optimism that he can figure out a way to to make it out of here. But I think it's really cool how the chapter starts with Tyrion focusing on his survival. Yeah, and the opening 
lines of the chapter, it's Tyrion. What Tyrion is dealing with is no longer like the Starks being mean to him yeah. or Alistair Thorne with his snarky responses. His sustenance is, itself is on the line. The opening lines of the chapter, you want eat? Morda asked, glowering. He had a plate of boiled beans in one thick, stub-fingered hand, as you said. So right away we get this focus on Tyrion's very moment-to-moment survival. And his he responds to it with sarcasm, despite how hungry he is, both because that's the armor he's developed, as he was talking to John about, and because, a lot like his dad, his pride is on the line. As he says, right. Tyrion Lannister was starved, but he refused to let this brute see him cringe. Which is part of what makes Tyrion so interesting as a character, is that, on the one hand, he's so like Tywin in a lot of ways. On the other hand, so much of his personality was built as defense mechanisms to deal with Tywin. Exactly. So Tywin has... Tywin, it's not just that Tywin has created Tyrion in his own image, it's that he's done so inadvertently. Right. Through mockery and hatred, not through deliberately molding him. And I think we really start getting into that over the next couple of chapters, because, of course, Tyrion VI is really start where we're getting into the legend of Tywin, mm-hmm. and the horrible legend of Tywin, and then yes. Tyrion VII is where we actually meet him. So I think you can already see Martin building in these kind of parallels between how Tyrion and Tywin think, how they respond to threats, how they conceptualize enemies. And I overall, obviously, like Tyrion much more than I like Tywin, <laughs> but... Uh, their their instincts in terms of how they master a situation are very similar in some ways. Yeah, they really are. Uh, Tywin, of course, has the advantage of both being taller and also being one of the most powerful lords in the realm. Tyrion has the advantage in being able to talk his way out. You know, Tywin, as we're going to find out in A Game of Thrones, he calls the banners. They can, and because Tyrion is taken prisoner, he can march his army against the Golden Tooth and essentially destroy the Riverlands. Tyrion's only advantage in this chapter here is being clever enough to kind of talk his way out of things. Well, he doesn't quite talk his way out of things. That comes in, in Catelyn 7, when Bronn and Servar's Egan fight. But no, it's, it's, it's great though. It's, it's, uh, it's cool though, is that Tyrion kind of feels, you can get a real sense of exhaustion from the way that Tyrion is interacting with Mord. Like he's, uh, this isn't the first time they've had this little tea to teat of, oh, here are the beans over here, over here, over here. Because he says, was, must we do this every single time I'm supposed to eat sort of thing. So he's exhausted by it. He's tired of the ritual that he has with Mord. Yeah, he says, must we play the same fool's game with every meal? And that sounds almost like Martin is describing the Game of Thrones itself. Not just calling it a game, but also the the Blackfish will call the trial by combat of fools festival being presided over by Lysa. So, you know, Tyrion is throughout this chapter kind of, as you say, exhausted with these rituals and performances and traditions he has to jump through in a blatantly unjust, brutal situation. Um, And yet, despite enjoying the sound of his own voice, Tyrion is clearly tiring of the ritual aspect of this. And that's Mm -hmm. why he, even as he shrugs off the beans, exasperated, like, oh, I'm not hungry after all. When Mord actually does get rid of them, he can't help but respond with anger. (laughs) With an, I know you withhold yourself since you're a family podcast, yes. but we'll call this call this the after hours section because I, <laughs> I do love Tyrion's quote here. You fucking son of a pox ridden ass! I hope you die of a bloody flux. <laughs> just a wonderful lot of like hard F and K and X sounds. Oh yeah, it's just it's just very well written as as a cursing passage because mm-hmm. there is. As, you know, as easy as it is to, to drop a swear word in to get a laugh, there's a certain art to crafting a perfect, like, a puerile, oh, obnoxious yeah. line like that that I think Martin generally does very well, and that's a good example. But yeah, and then he, as more gives him a kick, and Tyrion yells after him, I take it back, I'll kill you myself, I swear it. <laughs> Which is, again, very relatable, but it's just such a useless, pointless threat that I think we're supposed to realize that as understandable as Tyrion 
Tyrion's rage is given his plight, he's not responding to it with the best tools, and that's why he has to think to himself, if he had only shut his mouth, making the connection between yeah. how he's dealing with Mord and how he's dealing with Sweet Robin. Because again, we sympathize there, because Sweet Robin is calling him small, Lys yep. is calling him the imp, like they're being jerks to him. And especially on Reread, when you come back knowing that Lysa is the one guilty of this crime. Right. And she is just completely framing Tyrion for it. Is You know, obviously Tyrion doesn't know that. But it still kind of puts us in his mindset where he's just, it's just galling and his blood is boiling. And, um, you know, not only did he, not only is he innocent, not only did he face danger and danger, not only did he face danger to his life again and again on the way here, but the leadership of the Vale, as we said in Catalan 6 when we met Lysa and Sweet Robin, is such a transparent joke. Yeah. Like Tyrion is looking at this court and thinking, really, this, these are the people who are going to kill me. This is how I'm going out. I'm being, you know, tried for my life by these obvious fools. And all of these knights and all these heroes are just standing aside. It's like when Sansa thinks to herself that Joffrey just had them beat me and all the people of the court just stood there and watched and did nothing. Like, obviously, Tyrion's more sarcastic about it than Sansa is, but that's <laughs> the same kind of realization he's facing. So, of course, he responds with mockery to this. This whole setup is so unjust that it it deserves mockery, but it, it gets him in trouble. As he says... That would have been a very good time to have kept his mouth closed and his head bowed. <laughs> he could see that now. Seven hells, he had seen it then. But Tyrion's <laughs> mood had been too foul for sense. Um, and it, like, yeah, like you said, so much of it is the shame of Bronn carrying him up. So it's that shame and that pride that comes to the fore with Tyrion. And he once again falls back on the threat. You know, should any harm come to me, my brother Jamie will be pleased to see that they do die. <laughs> Even as he spat out the words, Tyrion knew they were folly. Yeah, it, it, it's folly. But at the same, I mean, it's a very understandable anger. I mean, I feel like, think about like, if you're listening in, which I'm assuming you are at this point, think about if like you're all the worst thing, all the things that you feel self-conscious about, people are proclaiming it in front of Dozens, if not hundreds of people. And, you know, it's even like on reread, it's even more anger causing because we know that Lysa Aaron was the one that was behind John Aaron's murder. And yet Lysa Aaron's the one that's accusing Tyrion of being the one who is responsible for John Aaron's death. I mean, that's kind of like that comes way out of left field. I think it's 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 interesting that Catelyn picks up on that later on and that she lays that crime on Tyrion's lap as well. So and I, and I know that in the next Catelyn chapter, she does kind of think back to it a little bit and kind of wonder, like, how could he kill all these people sort of thing? So you have that seed of doubt that Tyrion was truly responsible for the cat's ball attempting to kill Bran Stark. And certainly there's a lot of a whole lot of doubt placed on whether Tyrion could have killed Jon Arryn. It's also interesting to note in this chapter that Tyrion never says to himself something to the effect of I never killed these people or, or something like that. I mean, he says it out outwardly to the assembled nobility of the Vale, but he never like has an internal monologue of I wasn't responsible for any of this. So Martin does kind of leave that open, at least for, I think, until the next Tyrion chapter when he finally tells Bronn that, no, he actually wasn't responsible for for killing any of these people. But I, but I think it's to kind of back up, though, it, it is extremely aggravating for Tyrion to have all of his disabilities and all of his shortfalls and all of the things he's extremely self-conscious about being thrown back in his face over and over again. So it's an understandable anger, although it doesn't get him anywhere. Yeah, you need to have some oomph behind you to make this kind of threat work in the same way that Ned, when he goes up against Joffrey and Cersei in a scene that is kind of very similar in how it's set up to this one and Ned's downfall in the throne room gets, it's, you got Joffrey in the Sweet Robin role, you got Cersei in the Lysa role, Ned thinks he has swords to back his threat up, but he doesn't. And, you know, and yeah. compare this to when Tyrion 
makes his his threats against uh, Joffrey's Kingsguard. He's got Bronn and Timot behind him. Yeah. So he's 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 more able. He, by that point, he's he's gotten these guys behind him, so his threats can be taken more seriously. Where in this chapter, he knows at some level that they can. They're just going to get him in trouble. I think both, you know, we're going to get into the contrast between Ned and Tyrion a lot when we get into A Clash of Kings. Yes. When Tyrion takes over for Ned's hand. But they do have a lot of themes in common, and here you see that when that, whatever your strategy going into this kind of situation, whether it's a mercy, whether it's a threat, you better be able to back it up. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It, it's it's clear that you need swords to back up your point. And Tyrion makes note that he's making these threats, but they're empty threats, because there's no way, even if Jamie Lannister was able to get past the Mountain Clansmen, past the Bloody Gate... He'd still have to fight his way through thousands of feet, call it thousands of feet of upland, of, of mountainous terrain, which arrows and stones could be thrown at him the entire time. And that he would be fighting and fighting and fighting and that taking the eerie is impossible from fighting from the ground. So Tyrion knows his threats are vain. He knows that they're empty, but he makes them all the same because he's angry. And it, again, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense at the same time. It's an understandable reaction, just not a rational one. Yeah, his anger has to be contrasted with the peril of his situation. And like we said in Catalan 6, our intro to the Vale proper, there is a very much an orgy of world building going on where Martin is delighting and showing us all these these details and this this ambitious tableau of the Vale. And here we get into that in a much more kind of like a horror survival influence direction. The the yeah. sky cells are really a particular nightmare of mine. Within A Song of Ice and Fire, I very much remember reading this chapter the first time through because my hands were gripping the book and I was just shaking my head like, no, 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 that's not acceptable, this is not okay. Uh, it really can't be overstated what an inhumane method of imprisonment mm-hmm. this is. Uh, just the exposure, the psychological torments, the blue is calling, as you said, the uh, constant abuse from Mord. And yeah, the detail that really makes the hair stand up for me is that the floor slopes. <laughs> like you can't even sleep, you can't even rest, it's just like... It's it's so nightmarish in a way that, you know, the black cells are their own kind of torment. Again, the Ned yeah. Tyrion parallels. Ned gets thrown into the black. Tyrion gets thrown into the blue. And, you know, that being cut off from from any kind of light, any kind of just sensory input is a, a torment in and of itself. And Tyrion doesn't have that. As he says, he gets all the sunshine a man could ask for. But there, there's a level of constant physical danger that that just... Ugh, it makes my just my hackles rise when I reread this stuff. So, I mean, the physical torment ties back into the mockery that Tyrion faces for being a dwarf. All of this is worth because of worse because of his size. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe you could say he, you know, he has less space to take up in the cell because of it. But like his his muscles are hurting more. He's more vulnerable to attack from Mord. If he falls like he does, he's in a more vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just yet yet another challenge being thrown on him by an unfeeling, unsympathetic world that just makes things harder for him. Uh, the psychological torment, however, ties into how he survives this situation by keeping control of his faculties and mastering his environment. Like you yes. said to John, my mind is my weapon. Mm-hmm. This is what keeps me alive. This is what keeps me useful. And now we're really seeing that demonstrated because it's it's all he's got up against a situation that makes the physical torments he faces day to day even worse than they are normally. Mm-hmm. So he has to he has to run through his options, uh, you know, and and see how he can possibly react and imagine what's going on in the outside world. It's interesting to note uh, how Tyrion predicts how his siblings will react to his arrest, especially. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because he thinks his sister, that is Cersei, was not without a certain low cunning, but her pride blinded her. She would see the insult in this, not the opportunity. And Jaime was even worse, rash and headstrong and quick to anger. His brother never untied a knot where he could slash it with two swords. 
And we did see that in Eddard 9, where Jamie obviously cut the knot rather uh, brutally in killing uh, three of Ned's men and then ha- having Ned's horse crash on top of him, injuring him severely. But then, you know, Tyrion is right in that when we see in the next, in Eddard 10, our, very, our next chapter for next week, we see Cersei very much the way that Tyrion predicts. By what, by what right do you lay hands on my blood? Cersei demanded. Who do you think you are? So we're seeing that Tyrion is, like you said, mastering his environment, but he's also understanding the people around him. And, you know, it makes sense, too, because of the characters in the story, Tyrion would know the most, of the characters Tyrion would know the most in the story, Jaime and Cersei would be the two, as well as his father, that he would be able to predict their movements and, and interactions after they would find out about his imprisonment. Yeah, Tyrion does know his family quite well in this regard, and he's specifically contrasting them to him. Right. And implying that, like, I have to be the cunning one. I have to be the one who actually thinks a few moves ahead because my siblings are so rash and impulsive. So that sets us up for the the transition that we've been talking about in this yes. episode. The, the Tyrion turns his, turns his silver tongue, or rather his golden tongue, to getting himself out of this perilous situation instead of further into it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he thinks to himself he would have to get out of here and soon. His chances of overpowering Mord were small to none. Like that's small to none. He gives himself <laughs> a little bit of a chance. That's nice, Tyrion. You know, be confident, buddy. Yeah. And no one was about to smuggle him a 600-foot-long rope, so he would have to talk himself free. His mouth had gotten him into this cell. It could damn well get him out. Mm. And he's making this decision specifically because he's done being a pawn. He's done being a secondary character in other people's stories. There's kind of a meta aspect to this, where Tyrion is seizing control of his own arc and insisting that he can be a protagonist as well. He's not (laughs) just baggage on Catelyn Stark's journey. Quote, Tyrion Lannister hated being used. You can almost think of like the Sky Cell as like an elaborate fourth wall that he's breaking. Like there's the open wall. Like you can think of that as like, you know, the classic fourth wall in theater or in comics and he's breaking through it to take control. And he's, you know, he's taking a stand not just against this specific situation, but against all the bullshit he's ever faced for his Mm -hmm. stature. There's that kind of, I've, you know, I've taken it up to here and I'm not putting up with it anymore. He's... He's drawing as a branded in the chapter we did last week on courage in the face of fear, mm-hmm. thinking to himself, never show them you're afraid. He's following his advice to John about trying to make his, his, his wit and his cynicism his armor rather than something he hurts himself with. Um, of course, the one resource he has to draw on is his wealth as a Lannister. <laughs> how, how would you like to be rich being his opening move? Yeah, you know, that's something that Tyrion consistently draws on. From this chapter on to the end of A Dance with Dragons with Tyrion promising paper dragons to Brown Ben Plum and the Second Sons. So this is the one recourse that Tyrion has that it consistently utilizes because it is something that is real. I mean, the wealth of as rich as a Lannister, the wealth of House Lannister, the mines of Casterly, these are all things that have made House Lannister into an incredibly wealthy and rich family in Westeros. So he has that ability to tap into that to get him out of these situations. Although here it doesn't quite get him out of the situation. That comes a little bit later. But he does utilize it to kind of manipulate Mord to help him towards his end goal of getting outside of the veil. Yeah, and it's really fun to watch Tyrion work. As as you've said a couple of times, this is the chapter where we really get the, the Tyrion we know from his time as Hand of the King or his time manipulating uh, characters like Young Griff and Brown Ben in the Dance with Dragons. Just it's so much fun to watch Tyrion work. Just like the little detail of him getting his cloak back from Mord is yes. so. It's at one level, it's so petty, <laughs> but it's also just like such a such a I don't know, such a champion move, like such a such a power move on Mord. Like immediately, as soon as Tyrion gets a little bit of advantage, he's going to twist the knife in and and 
emphasize who's in charge. I mean, I'm going to get into this much more in Clash of Kings. Tyrion and the Lancers as a whole borrow a lot from, I think, mob movies and just organized crime stories in mm-hmm. general. And, like, uh, Scorsese movies like Goodfellas in terms of, like, this this sense of how power dynamics can shift in a room and how they kind of hinge on bravado and talking a bigger game than you actually possess. I think yes. you can see a lot of those kind of themes in Tyrion's character. And it works because it's really fun. The dialogue is super compelling. And you just kind of chuckle along with Tyrion when he does stuff like get get the cloak back. And, and as we've been saying, you sympathize for him because of how intense his situation is when... There's that quote one time after Mord hits him, the pain was so bad he did not remember falling, but when he opened his eyes again, he was on the floor of his cell. His ear was ringing and his mouth was full of blood. He groped for purchase to push himself up, and his fingers brushed against... nothing. (laughs) Tyrion snatched his hand back as fast as if it had been scalded, and tried his best to stop breathing. He'd fallen right on the edge, inches from the blue. (laughs) So, I mean, that's what gives his snark real weight... And it makes his kind of triumph in getting out of there feel earned. It's just, he's, he's just that close to a grisly death. But it is worth mentioning, as we've said, that what gets him out with both Mord and Lysa is his status. Yes. You know, prom- promising gold to Mord, trading on his literacy, which he says Mord regards with superstition, and uh, demanding trial by combat from Lysa. He's, he's still trading on that Lannister name more than he is his scrappy underdogness. It's a weird mix of Tyrion being both at the bottom of the pyramid and the top at the same time. Yeah, you it's a point where we see George graying Tyrion up. And I think that's really good because we've seen Tyrion as essentially the heroic underdog throughout the story so far, giving John instruction, giving him the hard truths that he's going to be facing at Castle Black, having him talk with Catelyn Stark and attempt to talk his way out of this, uh, out of their conundrum at the end of the crossroads, having being on the, on the mountain road here, we're though we're seeing Tyrion as a much more gray character because We've seen Tyrion as a friend to bastards, cripples, and you know broken things, but here he has privileges above that of the common man, and he's not necessarily reflective of the inequality of the Westeros judicial system. It's kind of a hard thing to say. Um, you know, he's he says he was highborn, the son of the most powerful lord in the realm, the brother of the queen. He could not be denied a trial. Well, I don't really fault him necessarily in the moment where his very survival is kind of on the line, but at the same time, he doesn't extend that sympathy out to. The small folk, because the implication here is that the small folk could be denied trial. The small folk could simply be tossed out the moon door at the urging of Lysa and Sweet Robin. And it's a recurring theme in Tyrion's story that kind of as modern as he comes across to us as points, he's still wedded to a system which benefits him far and above the common man and above the small folk in Westeros. But, you know, by the end of A Dance of Dragons, he's it's kind of changing when he's actually stripped of all of the things that make him powerful. He doesn't have access to the wealth of, of, of his family. And he's, you know, essentially a entertainer along with Penny. And when Penny tells him, you mustn't mock him. Do you know anything? You can't talk the way to a big person. They can hurt you. Sir Jorah could have seen, could have tossed you to the sea. The sailors would have laughed to see you drown. And you have to be careful around big people. Be jolly and playful with them. Keep them smiling. Make them laugh. That's what my father always said. Didn't your father ever tell you how to act with big people? My father called them small folk, said Tyrion. (laughs) And he was not what you'd call a jolly man. He took another sip of watered rum, sloshed around his mouth, spat it out. Still, I take your point. I have to deal. I have a. I have a deal to learn about being a dwarf. Perhaps you will be good enough to teach me in between the jousting and the pig riding. So, in this chapter, Tyrion utilizes his status as a Lannister 
by the end of A Dance of Dragons, he's learning not to be Tyrion Lannister. He's learning to be Hugor Hill, a dwarf, a small, a peasant. And so he's learning a little bit, but it's coming very late in the story. At this juncture, though, at this juncture in the story, rather, he is ah. able to utilize his wealth and his status to get him somewhat out of the situation. Yeah, that's a terrific analysis there, really. I love that Tyrion is forced to face, thanks to his relationship with Penny, that while he has faced discrimination for being a dwarf throughout his life, he has never learned what it's like to be a poor dwarf, right? which is just a whole other layer of hell you got to go through. And Penny forces him to face that at least a little bit. And I do love that line, my father called them small folk, because that perfectly captures what we're talking about here, that Tyrion hasn't really learned how to hasn't really learned the survival tactics of a yeah. dwarf in a world that hates dwarves because he's always been able to call on his father's wealth and name to yes. protect him, at least to a certain extent. So he is – I love that while Penny is naive in a certain way, like when it comes to the attitude of the lords and the soldiers, she's also much more worldly than Tyrion in this way. And yes. he's kind of the naive one when it comes to this particular issue. And yeah, it's that mix of – the genuine pride and outrage that he is bringing to the table with the kind of cynicism and manipulation he uses for his endgame that will define a lot of Tyrion scenes to come. I think, yes. You, know, you, you relate to a lot of Tyrion's kind of motives and instincts throughout the next couple of books, but his, his actual behavior and his techniques are, again, the things on loan from Tywin for the most part, and that's the stuff that really makes you tilt your head. Yeah. But I think Martin keeps a really good balance in this chapter. As we've been saying, you know, at this moment when Tyrion might seem like he's leaning towards obnoxiousness again, because he's just, again, just saying to himself, well, they have to give me a trial. I'm a highborn. I'm the queen's brother. Right. Uh, then Martin accordingly ramps up the aura of icy horror from the sky cells to the moon door, mm. which is described again in this really kind of skin crawling fashion. A narrow weirwood door stood between two slender marble pillars, a crescent moon carved in the white wood. Those standing closest edged backward as a pair of guardsmen marched through. One man removed the heavy bronze bars, the second pulled the door inward. Their blue cloaks rose snapping from their shoulders, caught in the sudden gust of wind that came howling through <laughs> the open door. And beyond was the emptiness of the night sky, speckled with cold, uncaring stars. Uncaring stars, they're not going <laughs> to save you. Behold the king's justice, Slice Aaron said. A wonderfully ironic line. <laughs> torch flames fluttered like pennons along the walls, and here and there the odd torch guttered out. So it's very kind of long night-ish imagery, like yeah. the... The uncaring stars, the fires going out, the sudden cold. Uh, and we'll get, of course, into the weirwood imagery a little later in the episode. But like I said, the stakes are being effectively ramped up. Tyrion is no longer being dangled on the edge and invited to throw himself off. Now he's being faced with the possibility of being directly thrown off that yep. edge by force. So, I mean, this is basically what Bran faced. It's the fall. But while that traumatic moment for Bran broke his relationship with the stories and songs, which was a very kind of childish relationship... Tyrion is older and jaded, so he's more out to manipulate the image of the stories and songs. I love that moment when he turns to Marillion and says, When you make a ballad of this, be certain you tell them how Lady Arryn denied the dwarf the right to a champion and sent him forth lame and bruised and hobbling to face her finest knight. It's wonderful. He's using propaganda as this weapon against Lysa. This, again, that, that his only weapon is words and cunning. And he's going to take advantage of how unchivalric this all is and how it just doesn't look good. It's not that it's defying a greater moral principle. It's that it doesn't look good. It's not romantic. That's, that's kind of a weakness given how the, the rule of House Aaron, especially in these uncertain political times, is so built on the image of chivalry that they claim to have mastered and invented, basically. Yeah. So he knows his opponent well, and his cynicism about the proceedings is really justified by the response to his request for a trial by combat. All these proud fools demanding the honor hmm. of, of sticking up for John Aaron and, and attacking Tyrion. And I do love that Servardus is the one who comes the closest to a worthy protest. 
He's the one that points out, this is just appalling. This is a farce. <laughs> if you're going to ask me to go up in a trial by combat against Tyrion, who's, you know, half my height, maybe. Right. This is, this, that's just a hideous thing to ask a person to do. I, I like that he points that out. Yeah, you know, the Aaron words are as high as honor. And it's, those are great words, but it's very clear here that honor is nowhere to be found in this, in the high hall of the Eerie. You know, I, I love the fact that Tyrion's words to Marillion about winning the PR war, that uh, they end up, Resulting in Lysa being like, oh, fine, I've denied you nothing. Yeah. You know, go ahead, pick your champion. Who's going to stand? Who's going to die for the dwarf sort of thing? Yeah, and it works. That's amazing. It, it worked. And I mean, I think like um, it's a clear indication of growth in Tyrion that he's utilizing mm-hmm. not just his sarcasm and mockery here, but he's utilizing his ability to talk his way out of situation. Something that we're going to see in the very next Tyrion chapter where he talks his way out of murder from the mountain clansmen. And here we get this in, you know, in spades here, and we're, we're going to see it throughout his arc here. But then, you know, of course, the, the, the problem is, you know, who's going to stand for Tyrion? Who among the people that are there is going to stand for Tyrion and be his champion? Are there no true knights among you? Dunk called out. And yes. That's kind of what Tyrion is doing here, except it's cynical. So he's doing it in a very manipulative fashion. And the one who answers is no knight at all. Not yet. Uh, but the most kind of gold-hungry and cynical swordsman of them all. There was a stirring in the rear of the chamber. I'll stand for the door, hmm. Bronn called out. And even though there's such a base motivation going on, even though like Braun is doing so not because it's he's a true knight, but because he knows he can get gold out of it, it's still so triumphant because yeah. it, it's Tyrion pulled this off. Like he came from came from out of nowhere and was dangling on the edge and committed himself and made this big gamble and there's that ah that satisfaction of, of of a plan coming together. Again, it feels very crime movie-ish, like this is Danny Ocean talking his way out of jail or <laughs> something. Uh, that's it feels like the kind of the, the genre mood that Martin is going for. And yeah, I love that in the the context of the very pretentious Lords of the Vale all just kind of up on their own honor and image while proposing throwing an innocent man to his death. I love that Tyrion Saver is the least pretentious swordsman of them all. Yes. Catelyn says that sword might be ugly but he moves like it's part of his arm, just like Sirio says you're supposed to do. Yes, indeed. And in contrast, though, Sir Vardis Egan wields the sword of John Aaron in the next Catelyn chapter, and it ends up claiming his life, which is sad because Sir Vardis is the only one who seems to be honorable, besides Catelyn Stark, who, by the way, is good um, in this chapter. So, I mean, Sir Vardis, as, as much as you, you want to, as much as he's, fighting for the wrong side. It is a tragedy mm-hmm. that he ends up falling, that he ends up not being there at Lysa's side when Littlefinger comes stalking into the Eerie. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. These are these are moments in the story. These are these are kind of game changing moments in the story that are kind of butterfly effect. You know, imagine a scenario where Servardus Egan survives. What happens to Littlefinger in the Vale? What happens to Lysa in the Vale? But of course he doesn't survive and we're on into uh, well, obviously, our next chapter is at her 10, which is fantastic. But then on after that, two weeks from now, Catelyn 7, which is going to be a great chapter. Yes, indeed. And speaking of Catelyn, that takes us into our likes and dislikes for the chapter. Something I like in Tyrion 5 is that while Catelyn is very much a background character here, she just gets a couple lines tossed in in the closing scene. I do like that she gets this gradual realization of how thoroughly Lysa <laughs> has lost control. Like, you can see her just tugging at her collar going, hmm... I think yeah. I made, made a huge mistake. Yeah. Like first, first, she replies to Lysa's blithe assertion that the Sky Cells have broken Tyrion by, as you say, noting that he does not look broken to me. <laughs> 
And then openly calling out when Lysa orders the moon door open that this is unwise. Yes. Which, you know, it's not exactly the harshest of languages, but she's still breaking decorum by saying it in, in open court. Enough to indicate that she's like, no, this is, this is the exact opposite of what I wanted you to do. So I like that we get that sprinkled in uh, before, of course, we get to it explicitly in Catalan 7, which the entire chapter is her just shaking her head at Lysa the, the, the entire time. Uh, and obviously, Catalan does bear some culpability for that because she did bring Tyrion to Lysa's, uh, to, to her care, her area of authority. But of course, Catalan had no idea how thoroughly Lysa had uh, fallen into the abyss by this point. Yeah, Catelyn is very much aware of her surroundings at this point. And mm-hmm. her awareness is leading her to doubt her actions. Now, again, we can say it was smart for her to, in that Catelyn chapter back in in Catelyn 5, of her to say, oh, we're going to go to Winterfell, you know, oh, onwards to Winterfell sort of thing. And then they go to the Vale. That's smart. And it's also... Smart that, I mean, it's smart in a vacuum, I think is probably the best way to put it without yeah, knowing exactly. what Lysa is like and how her and Sweet Robin are misruling the veil and how they're going to make this entire situation a freaking farce. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't lay much blame at Catelyn's, uh, at Catelyn's feet necessarily, but I do think that at this point, Catelyn's like, this is, this is not, this is not good, man. <laughs> we're not, yep. we're, this is not going to be good. Everything was bad and is getting worse. Absolutely. Yes. So, uh, what did what did you like about the chapter, sir? No, I. Uh, so, one of the things, and this is kind of a more minor thing, but you know, keep keep it in, in mind as you're reading through Song of Ice and Fire. I'm I'm really enjoying George's turn towards using more sigils in a Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, and he, of course, uses those use increasingly uses them throughout a Song of Ice and Fire. You know, as the story starts expanding out, we start getting some really really minor characters and houses showing up in the margins. In this chapter, Tyrion sees some new sigils. And the quote is, other spotted sported sigils he did not know. Broken Lance, Green Viper, Burning Tower, Winged Chalice. Those sigils correspond accordingly, and I had to look this up because I'm not as, as smart as people seemingly think I am. Uh, House Wideman is the Broken Lance. House Linderly of Snakewood is the Green Viper. House Grafton is the Burning Tower. And House Hersey is the Winged Chalice. And, you know, it's kind of cool, too. And I, I, it triggered a memory in my mind of George talking about this. And back at Comic-Con 2014, he said, quote, For me, one of the things I loved about the Middle Ages is the heraldry. And there's a lot of stuff about the heraldry of various houses in my books. I love that. I devote a lot of time to that. And I can really see George's love in this chapter here, or at least the emergence of this love. And I kind of love it, too, honestly. It's something I'd never really taken much stock in in previous reads, but now I'm kind of enjoying it a bit more. Um, (laughs) The one I especially love is the winged chalice, man. Can you imagine the fear that a dude would strike into the hearts of their enemies when they see you coming into battle, riding in with that winged cup sewn onto your surcoat. Man, in the winds of winter, as the Veil vale, vale Knights are riding north, I'm going to be looking out for that winged cup and finding that knight because you know that man ain't afraid of anything. Yeah, that's going to strike terror into the, the White Walker's icy hearts. <laughs> the cups are coming. We're screwed. <laughs> the flying but cups. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I do love that, not just for its connection to the Middle Ages, as Martin said, but just that he's growing so confident in the kind of the imagery and the details of this world that he's starting to sprinkle in stuff that even even the POV, in this case, Tyrion doesn't even know about. He's just showing us the images. And I think you can show Martin kind of getting his getting his sea legs as far as the social structure of his universe is concerned. And yeah, yeah. I love I love those those little details that will develop. And of course Martin will will work a fair amount of world building and character development into them. Like when Stannis changes his banner, for example, to a more lore influenced one in a Clash of Kings, 
or when uh, Euron presents his own banner in Feast of Crows and the Winds of Winter. I think you can see Martin expressing some real character work there in and of itself, as well as just uh, indulging in world building. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's if you go back to the Sospeak Martin archive from like 2000, one of the clues that John Connington was going to become a major character in A Dance with Dragons is he had a very, very long soliloquy about House Connington's heraldry. So uh, now yeah, I'll, that's true. I'll link that in the show notes for our, for our patrons if you want to take a look at that. So yeah, but what you dislike about this chapter though? Uh, Mord the Turnkey is kind of a one note <laughs> character who who seems ripped from a much lesser novel. He seems like a prison guard in like a children's book, yeah. or just a much simpler fantasy story, like you know something from the Willow era of 80s cheese fantasy. I, yeah. I get that he has to be an antagonistic figure for Tyrion in this chapter. That's what you need to get Tyrion backed into the corner, and his escape from that is exactly what makes the chapter so satisfying, as we've explained at length, but I don't know, I compare it to, like, the jailers that Davos tends to get, yeah. like, in, in Dragonstone and A Storm of Swords, when he gets the ones he calls Lamprey and Porridge, and <laughs> one of them he hears talking to the rats and feeding them like they're his children, or at hmm. White Harbor in Dance with Dragons, when he's talking to Sir Bartimus about the legends of the North, or is that one kid who comes and drinks with him and asks him about the smuggler's life. yeah. It's it's just it's very rich and very human. You get the sense of these little lives passing you by, and that these are real people, and they're not just brutes there to to push you into a corner. And again, it fits the characters. It fits Tyrion as a whole that his jailer would just be a brute that kind of brings Tyrion's pride and resentment to the surface. And it fits Davos because Davos is the empathetic guy from the yeah. slums that he would have jailers that are kind of rich, and he recognizes the humanity. And it's appropriate for the characters, but just in terms of reading it and taking pleasure from it. Mord is just kind of, he's just kind of nailed, fingernails on a chalkboard to me to a certain extent. He's just so kind of blunt and obvious. Yeah. It doesn't work that, it doesn't work that well for me. No, he, he kind of strikes me like gremlin-like almost kind of like a. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, no gold, no gold. I mean. Exactly. I, and if you're going to do that, just have Rorge go all the way. Right. And make them an, an absolute nightmare that's actually kind of significant uh, to the story. Yeah. Mord, is, Mord just kind of stands out to me this way. No, I, I, I totally agree that Mord is not necessarily all that complex. I mean, he's not designed to be complex, but I do think that Martin, as he progresses in writing a song of ice and fire, he does give us a bit more depth on some of these minor, more background, even tertiary characters. You kind of get the sense that they're real people more just kind of strikes me as not as real of a person until we actually see him in a storm of swords and a feast for crows. Then he becomes, he becomes a little bit more interesting then. I do love that he uses Tyrion's gold for teeth. That is, <laughs> that is just the best thing as Sansa describes it. Uh, that's just a wonderful statement on how kind of, on the one hand, like it's useless, like it didn't really change, like more didn't become a lord, it didn't lead to any social climbing. On the other hand, it's like, if it makes him happy, and, and now he has teeth, I mean, I think gold is soft, I don't know if that would actually work that well, but if it makes him happy, then maybe that's the most practical use of gold possible. Yeah, so that, there you I, go. That is, that, is, that is a nice little detail. I do like how that pays off, though I don't imagine we'll be seeing much of more of the turnkey until he shows up as a Zora High in a Dream of Spring. Of course. Yes, a Zora High in a Dream of Spring. Yes, absolutely. Now, what about you, sir? What do you dislike about Tyrion V, A Game of Thrones? Yeah, so this is a more major one, I'm going to say. Um, it, it feels like that it might have been an oversight on Martin's part when he was writing this chapter, or maybe not. I'll, I'll let folks who have been listen, who are listening to uh, come in and correct me, as they, they like to do. So, in the chapter, Tyrion notes that, quote, Perhaps the direwolf and the lion were not the only beasts in the woods, and if that was true, someone was using him as a cat's ball. And so he says this in this chapter, and he leaves the impression that he has no idea who this person or faction is. But but wait, 
When you go back and look at Tyrion 4, he already knows that Littlefinger has set him up with the dagger. So yep. why isn't he making that connection? I guess, you know, in George's defense, you know, it is he's also shrouding the fact that Joffrey sent the footpad to kill Bran. But that's that's still an actual mystery at this at this point in the story. That doesn't get revealed until the Storm of Swords. It kind of doesn't make sense that George would obscure Littlefinger as the one who is framing Tyrion, given that readers already know that Littlefinger fingered Tyrion as the dagger's owner all the way back in Catelyn Four, and Tyrion knows that Littlefinger is framing him because Catelyn already freaking told Tyrion that Littlefinger claimed that Tyrion was the dagger's owner in Tyrion yeah. Four. So it's just like. Yeah, it it feels like a bit more major than, especially on reread. I guess it it just kind of came up and I was like, man, this doesn't make sense that that Tyrion would be obscuring the fact that Littlefinger is the one who is the one who is using him as who is using Tyrion as a cat's ball. Yeah, this is one of the persistent problems I brought up before with how Martin writes Littlefinger and that he his thumb on the scales is just so visible in terms of saving Littlefinger from the risks he takes. I'm fine with Littlefinger taking big gambles and getting away with them, but the, the the author's job is to cover up the the intervention he's making to make right. that happen and i don't think i think martin leaves himself a little exposed here you do get at least a little bit of coverage for Tyrion not taking littlefinger down when he says that littlefinger has armored himself in gold and made right. the finances too impossible to understand but yeah it still makes zero sense that Tyrion is wondering to himself in this chapter who could it be who's this <laughs> third beast in the woods it couldn't possibly be the person catelyn already said framed me right right to my face. I mean, they had a whole conversation about Littlefinger and yes. how Littlefinger's been talking about taking Catelyn's maidenheads and how Littlefinger loves nobody but Littlefinger. Right. Tyrion should already be thinking about how much he hates Peter Baelish. But of course, the reason he can't be thinking that is because then he would tell Tywin when he sees Tywin. Exactly. And if Tywin figures out that Littlefinger is mis- is manipulating them, then Littlefinger is immediately dead and Martin can't Correct. have that. Yeah. So yeah. I understand why, in terms of the plot, this has to happen. It's just... The, as I said, the machinations are a little too obvious. Yeah. I mean, what's that line that Tyrion has in, at the end of his arc in A Game of Thrones where Tywin is talking to him and Tywin says something like, uh, if you, we find out that our counselors, the Varas or, or Varas or Pycelle or Littlefinger are betraying us. And Tyrion says, oh, yes, head spikes walls, sorts of things. Right. Well, I mean, that's the opportunity for Tyrion to be like, hey, dad, um, do you know that Littlefinger was the one who said that I was the dagger's owner that started this whole goddamn mess that we're in right now, where we're losing to the Starks at the end of A Game of Thrones? I think we should just put Littlefinger's head on a spike immediately when I get down to King's Landing. But of course, that can't happen because George needs Littlefinger to remain a constant antagonist and a constant villain in the story, or else, I guess... I mean, yeah, I, I think it's good that Littlefinger is a villain in the story and he's a long-lasting villain throughout all five books in A Song of Ice and Fire and definitely on Into the Winds of Winter from the Elaine sample chapter. At the same time, the ways that Martin utilizes to allow him to survive just seem far-fetched and more plot contrivance than anything else. Yeah, you need him for the Tyrell-Lannister alliance. You need him for the Purple Wedding, arguably, or at least the aftermath of it. And you very much do need him as the kind of final boss of Sansa's character evolution, which I think is what we're seeing as the books continue. I wish Martin had been a little more graceful in terms of how we got him there. Yeah. Uh, speaking speaking of the Purple Wedding, moving into our foreshadowing and groundwork section, this will, of course, not be Tyrion's last trial in A Song of Ice and Fire. Hmm. He will go on trial in the aftermath of the Purple Wedding for the death of Joffrey. And there is much in common between those two trials. In yeah. both cases, Tyrion is innocent of the crime. In both cases, there is a crazy widow <laughs> insisting that he did it. 
Lysa and Cersei. Yep. In both cases, it is a trial by combat that decides his fate. It'll be uh, Bronn versus Vardis Egan this time in Catalan 7. It's Oberyn uh, versus Gregor Clegane mm-hmm. in, uh, in that case in the trial for Joffrey's murder. And in both cases, of course, Tyrion just can't keep his mouth shut. He doesn't nope. really learn the lesson that, that he tries to make himself learn in this chapter because, of course, the stakes have ramped up even higher by the time we get to the end of A Storm of Swords. But I think that is interesting coming back to this on reread that there really is a lot in common between the two trials of Tyrion Lannister. And maybe, yes. the, maybe there'll be a third one involving Daenerys at some point. There'll be similar themes. It's yeah, entirely there possible, you go. But there's definitely some strong connections here. There's even a confession as well. In this chapter, True. we get Tyrion's confession. And then in, when he's in front of the... Uh, from Tywin and Oberyn and Mace Tyrell, he gives a confession as well, where he, yeah. I confess, I did nothing. I, I had no part in this sort of thing, um, where he's super pissed off because at that point, I believe that Shay has testified against him. I'd have to reread the chapter itself. Yeah, that's yeah. what puts him over the top. And then he gives that big speech, which is arguably even better in the show about yes. how he wishes wishes he was the monster that they all think he is. Absolutely. One of the ultimate Tyrion moments for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's also kind of interesting that this is the only trial by battle where the quote unquote gods decide correctly, you know, in Tyrion's later yeah. trial over and dies. And then before that though, you know, we have the trial by battle between Barak and Sander, which is one of the, the greatest scenes in all the song of ice and fire where Sander oh, yeah. is super guilty of Micah's murder. And, but he's found innocent by the gods at the, uh, by, by defeating Beric Dondarrion in the, um, uh, in that trial by battle. But then, you know, in the Winds of Winter, I'm, I, I think you're with me on this one. I think Sir Robert Strong is going to win on behalf of Cersei Lannister, who is 100% guilty of every fucking crime that she is charged with by the High Sparrow. I think that she, she's going to win out there. So I think, um, I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. yeah I, I think it's interesting that, um, in season six of Game of Thrones, that one of the more interesting points of that season was Tommen abolishing trial by battle as something that can be done by the nobles in Westeros. I don't I, I really hope that's not the case in the Winds of Winter, just because I would love to see Sir Robert Strong fight against someone like Lancel Lannister or someone like that. But at the same time, I think it's a fascinating concept and one that I, you know, from a moral and legal standpoint, I definitely agree that the nobility should not be given a special class in order to, or a, or a special dispensation in the law to appeal to the quote unquote gods in order to determine their innocence or guilt, especially if you're guilty. Yeah. I mean, it, advan- it favors people who have training with swords to get back to that John chapter with Donald Noy, who was informing him about his advantage there. It favors people like Tyrion who know people with swords yep. who have, you know, uh, powerful big brothers who are, are extremely martially advanced so it's definitely a bias system in all the ways that, you know, a lot of Westeros social structures are. And yeah, I think it's interesting that it's kind of a crapshoot whether a trial by combat actually produces the proper outcome. <laughs> I think you can see it on one level at a, as a sign the seven aren't really paying attention. I think in the, the Sandor and Barrack case, it's interesting because as I believe Thoros suggests that it means that the Lord of Light has something more in mind for Sandor. Hmm. So it, it does tie into Sandor's arc there of finding a, a better version of himself or trying to yeah. wean himself off violence. You do get the sense he's been granted a, a genuine mercy there and a second chance, yeah. which is uh, d- definitely not the case in the other trials, especially uh, Tyrion's trial by combat in A Storm of Swords, which right. is, uh, is much, more, much more brutal and devastating in its end. Oh, yeah. Um, in terms of the elements specifically in this scene regarding the world building of the veil, they are going to pay off later. Both the moon door yes. and the sky cells will return when Sansa becomes our POV in the veil. Lysa goes out the former. And of course, the <laughs> obvious irony where she was threatening to throw people out the moon door, but she's the one who goes. Yes. Um, Marillion is framed for it. 
and is imprisoned and tortured in the sky cells, which as we'll get into is, you know, one of the more brutal takedowns of the Sansa songs and stories equal life worldview. When this, this handsome singer, A, tries to rape her yeah. and then B is just tortured horribly and his, his songs kind of torment her after that. Like I, like I said in my summary, Marillion is an asshole and I don't like him, but at the same time, I pity him like when he's brought out before the assembled nobility of the Vale oh, and yeah. he's like crawling. blind and he can't barely walk and he's been like tortured to death. And I, and again, it's left ambiguous whether Marillion survives or not, but I do think it's a really haunting note, literally and figuratively, that Sansa can still hear Marillion playing his harp in the cell like long into the night sort of thing in a feast for crows i think that's one of those kind of skin crawling moments for him so again i don't like the dude but i i I pity him and pity the fate that's that's awaiting him come storm and and a feast for crows but no it's it's interesting to to denote that these things are going to be returning and it's again it's cool that martin sets these things up here you wonder whether like the moon door and the sky cells that george whether george had something in mind for what their use was going to be down the road. I think I can, I could, my guess is that he knew that the moon door, that lice would always go out the moon door. I, I feel like when I read this chapter, see how much she's crowing about the moon door that she yeah. was, the, the irony is just too strong for it not to have been intentional on Martin's part for lice to always been, in, been intended to, to go tumbling out the moon door wordlessly. Yes, indeed. And, um, Another way to think about the kind of lingering songs of Marillion is as a metaphor for the the quote-unquote singers of yep. the Children of the Forest that became the Green Seers. And speaking of which, there's a lot of interesting, like, Weirwood, Blood Raven, Children of the Forest imagery going on in this chapter as well, which I think is worth noting. Yeah, there's two really cool quotes here that just kind of really stuck out like a, like a sore thumb to me. And the first one is, The wretched boy had started looking down on him from a throne of carved weirwood beneath the moon and falcon banners of House Aaron. And then the second one is that the door over the moon door itself, the actual wooden part of it, is made of weirwood. It says, A narrow weirwood door stood between two slender marble pillars, a crescent moon carved in white wood. So there's been kind of a theory that's banged around the fringes of the fandom that Sweet Robin's shaking shaking sickness isn't really all that natural and maybe evidence that the boy is a failed pupil of Blood Ravens and all that Werewood may serve as context clues for this. And, you know, maybe we'll get something in The Winds of Winter where Bran is talking with, with Blood Raven or perhaps Blood Raven is showing Bran some of his backstory and history through visions and through the Werewood. Um, that he's attempted to test different boys to succeed him as the last green seer. Euron obviously would be a really interesting and fascinating one to see, but potentially Sweet Robin too would be a really interesting one to see. I don't know. I I, I tend to think that's a possibility. I'm not a hundred percent siding with that right now. I don't think there's been a a ugly bad theory that's kind of been bandied about that Sweet Robin is like. Um, what are they like a skin changer and, and different things like that. I don't think that's what George is indicating with sweet Robin, but I do think it's potentially showing us that he's, that maybe there's a bit more of a backstory to reveal about him come the winds of winter. I like that theory. It does tie into what I think about Euron, which is that he was indeed a, a rogue protege of blood Ravens. But I think Unlike Euron, if this is true for Sweet Robin, I don't know if it's going to matter for the yeah. plot. It just might be a detail you're supposed to pick up on and connect to what's going on with Bran. Or it might be purely symbolic. I mean, sure. Beric Dondarrion also has a lot of imagery in common with Blood Raven, but I think that's most 
I think that's more supposed to be setting them both up as like last hero Azora high figures rather right. than saying they're literally connected. So that might be what's going on with Street Robin as well. I think it is worth noting though that uh, the phrase the blue is calling and the emphasis on the the skies is kind of seductive nightmare that Tyrion goes through in this chapter is very similar to both Bran's flying dream yep. earlier in the book and also to to skip ahead a few books how Hagen describes skin changers who have gone too far especially <laughs> with birds he describes them as getting lost up in the moony blue and just staring up into the sky <laughs> which is kind of what happens to you if you're stuck in the sky so so I, I do think Martin is drawing so many links between this chapter and the weirwood children skin changer imagery we get later I don't think those links are accidental no. I don't know how important they are, but I don't think they're accidental. No, I agree that they're they're not accidental. I think they're intentional on Martin's part to definitely show us of to, to definitely show us that there's something more at work here. Martin loves to utilize imagery to tell a fuller story, and that's something that our friend LML is very much adept at talking about. As if you guys, yes, indeed, as you guys heard in our our previous chapters with LML and uh, Brand Three and Daenerys Three. But speaking of things that fly. <laughs> it's a terrible transition. Well done, sir. Ah, Segue of the episode. Nice there we go. Done. So let's talk a little bit about, in our final theory portion of this episode, about dragon riding and whether Tyrion Lancer will be a dragon rider and whether he'll be one of the three heads of the dragon. So this has been a theory that's been around since... I believe since the Game of Thrones was published. I mean, I think if you go back and look at some of those old Google groups, which have an archive of different things that fans were discussing back in the 90s, Tyrion was identified early on as a potential dragon rider, which makes sense given some things we we learned about him in the Game of Thrones. But there was a kind of a wrench thrown to that theory when Viserion was killed and became a White Walker dragon in Game of Thrones Season 7. In this chapter, though, we get some possible potential foreshadowing of Tyrion as a dragon rider in the unlikely guise of Lady Lysa's of Lady Lysa Aaron's mockery and threats of Tyrion as he stands before the nobility of the Vale. And here's the quote: "Can you fly, my Lord of Lancaster?" Lady Lysa asked. "Does a dwarf mm-hmm. have wings? If not, you would be wiser to swallow the next threat that comes to mind." So, after season seven and having five books in the shoot. Do we think that Tyrion Lannister will still be a dragon rider? Yeah, it's a great question. This is a theory I've generally always been on the side of Tyrion becoming a dragon rider. I think it's more likely than not, given the dragon imagery that has always kind of surrounded him, given that he is, as the story stands, sailing into Slaver's Bay when the dragons have just been released. Yep. And he's probably going to link up with Danny in some capacity, given the strong possibility, though not certainty, that he is a bastard son of Aerys Targaryen. I think there's a fair amount of evidence pointing in that direction. Uh, although, it, yeah, one does have to def- definitely reconcile that with uh, what happened on the show, which, while it doesn't rule anything out, definitely indicates a possible other direction for the third dragon besides Tyrion riding it. A much more, much colder direction, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. No, it's 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 very much a theory that I am 98, 99% sure is going to happen in the books, at least. I do Mm -hmm. think it's interesting to note that Martin has made this point repeatedly, both in the novellas, especially um, The Rogue Prince, The the Princess and the Queen, and The World of Ice and Fire, that dragons can have multiple riders, 
you know, you have Drogon, not Drogon, you have Balerion being ridden by multiple Targaryens. So maybe, I mean, this this is going to be kind of a, a dark segue, or not a dark segue. This is this is kind of a dark, a, a darker interpretation. But there's a possibility that you know Daenerys might be killed or die, which I think is something that's likely to happen by the end of the series. Maybe Tyrion rides Drogon after that. Maybe Jon Snow is killed. Because obviously Jon Snow is going to ride Rhaegal. I mean, I think we can pretty much, I mean, that's 100% at this point. I think that's very likely. I mean, there is like Jon is connected to white animals and white imagery and that yep. is connected to Viserion. But I think the fact that Rhaegal is the dragon named for Jon's Targaryen dad, that's just too irresistible given that Jon is probably going to be working through this sort of thing. So I think the connection has to be there. I agree. Yeah. So if Tyrion, Tyrion does end up riding one, I think it'll either be Viserion or Drogon in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, assuming Danny dies or disappears or, or some such. But yeah, I think when we talk about Tyrion as a potential dragon rider, some things we talk about is uh, our friend Manu's theory that he was talking about when he came on for Brand 4 about uh, Tyrion, about Bran warging into a dragon and allowing Tyrion to ride as yep. an echo of the gift that Tyrion gave to Bran of the saddle that we were talking about last week with Bran 5. So that would definitely be kind of very uh, a satisfying link uh, between those two characters and a payoff for that story. There's also the historical connection to Visenya just dropping in on the Eyrie yeah. on Dragonback and kind of taking over the veil that way. Maybe there'll be some kind of distorted echo of that if Tyrion means to take personal revenge with the dragon. Although, of course, Lysa won't be around to see it. <laughs> yeah, and you also have things like uh, George saying in 2007 on his Nada blog, uh, after he made an appearance in the game Second Life as Tyrion Lannister, and we have references before, but just to reiterate, he said, well, I made my appearance on Sheep Island a few hours ago, cleverly disguised as Tyrion the Imp for a reading and Q&A session at Bantam's virtual bookstore. Only this version of Tyrion could fly. Ah, if only Tyrion the books could fly. What mischief he will, ah, uh, could, ah, uh, never mind. So Martin is over the top hinting that Tyrion is going to, mm -hmm. quote unquote, fly in the I mean, he's not going out the moon door. So, I mean, Martin is hinting that Tyrion is going to be one of the dragon riders. But there is evidence against Tyrion as a dragon rider. The major one being that one of the dragons freaking dies in Game of Thrones season seven and the Night King rides the, rides the dragon. And the question you have to ask yourself is between 2007 and 2013, did George change his mind about Tyrion as a dragon rider? Because we know in 2013, he revealed the end game to David Benioff and Dan Weiss. And he also revealed the character states and their end states as well. So I, I'm so divided about this because I feel like, I, I feel like a white Walker dragon or a white dragon, whatever the terminology you want to use seems possible, possible. Is that the right word to use? I mean, it, it's definitely, it was, it's definitely a, a metal moment in Game of Thrones season seven. But the, but then I'm, I'm like, go back because I don't think that the wall is going to come down via a dragon, by, via dragon fire. I think the wall is going to come down via Jorman's horn, something that both Emmett and I, Emmett especially, have, have talked about significantly. So I, I just keep going like back and forth on that, on that part of the, uh, the story. Yeah. I mean, an ice dragon is, is definitely awesome and cathartic in, in an immediate way. And it does fit the overall imagery and themes of the series in terms of, not just the ice and fire elements, but their intertwining and their connection and synthesis. It, it does fit in that regard. But I also agree that I don't think that's actually how the wall is coming down in the books. And I think even more than 
the general skepticism one has to bring to the table when talking about how an adapted work is going to differ from its source material. I think you have to add on the extra layer in this case of the magical elements being specifically difficult to adapt for television. Yeah. And how you, you can't necessarily expect a one-to-one interpretation, especially given issues of budget and tone. Uh, I think that applies to the direwolves as well as the dragons. I don't think the kind of summary, kind of muddled fates we've seen the direwolves receive on the show are going to be perfectly mirrored in the books because Martin can just write them around right. with no changes to any budget. And I think that's the same for the dragons. I think that we might be seeing a knock-on effect of a knock-on effect of Euron's magical side being mostly excised from the show. Because, as I've said before, I think in the books, Euron is going to get the main plot task given uh, to the uh, Night King and the yep. show, namely uh, stealing a dragon via Dragonbinder and bringing down the wall via the Horn of Jorman. So once they decided to instead shift those to the kind of more streamlined, focused antagonist figure of the Night King, I think the knock-on effect might have been getting rid of Tyrion as a dragon rider and instead using hmm. Viserion as this ice dragon. Which I think also I think might work better in the books and the show, as many people have pointed out, just kind of visually, logistically, Tyrion's going to have a harder time dragon riding than yeah. other people would. So maybe that they decided that just might not look right in the show, whereas in the books it's up to our imagination, so it might work better. Yeah, I can see that. And, you know, you, you, you kind of triggered something in my mind. There's always the possibility that, and I think this is a probability in my mind, that Daenerys Targaryen defeats Euron Greyjoy when she comes to Westeros. Mm-hmm. That's one of the people... One of the maybe one of the lies that she has to slay to kind of bring it back to our opening question from the from the episode, and that would sure. potentially leave Viserion unridden, provided that he survives the encounter between you know Daenerys and Drogon. One of the the, the more fascinating battles from the Dance of the Dragons is the battle over the God's Eye, where you have the dragons oh, yeah. fighting over there. And I think I, I would feel very not very, but somewhat confident that if, if there is a Euron Daenerys confrontation, that it would take place over the God's Eye. I think that's fitting fitting scenery for for that end to to occur i agree for a bunch of reasons absolutely yeah but yeah so i think that would be a great way for Tyrion to end up a dragon rider was kind of the the product of that of euron being uh cast down and his stolen dragon being restored to team danny um but i think you can see hints of that in the show even when like Tyrion is is hanging out with the dragon down in the pit when he first arrives in marine you do get a sense that they're trying to preserve a connection there so i think even if even if the show doesn't ultimately go full Dragon Rider with Tyrion, I still think it remains a strong possibility in the books. I think that could be the case, too. And I think that about wraps us up for this episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Google Play, and all those places. And if you have not rated us already, please feel free to do so. Yes, indeed. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon, please do it. Patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. We're getting very close to our 3,000 a month stretch goal of forcing myself and Jeff, but mostly <laughs> Jeff, to answer your questions in a live episode. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So check that out if you have not. And follow us on social media. We're at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at poorquentin.tumblr.com or at poorquentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, Brendan B. Fish on Reddit. And my website is Wars and Politics of WordPress.com. You can join us next time for one of the most iconic chapters, really, in the whole series as Ned Stark dreams a dream of days gone by in Eddard 10. It's going to be featuring returning guests, Lias and Arbor, aka hey. Chloe Ketchum, from the Girls Gone Canon podcast. They already did an incredible episode about Eddard 10 that I encourage you to check out if you haven't already. We're going to just be standing on the shoulders of giants <laughs> in that regard, so it's going to be a lot of fun. That's what we do all the time anyways, yeah. Very intimidating True. chapter, but it's going to be a lot of fun, so I can't wait to do that. So 
thank you very much for listening to us and we will see you guys next time take care